All right, Psalm 85 this evening is where we pick up in our study here. And it seems that the context of Psalm 85 is the psalmist crying out to the Lord, as we're going to see, for restoration and for revival. In some ways, you could kind of maybe title this psalm that way. It's a cry or a prayer for restoration and for revival unto the Lord. The backdrop we believe this psalm finds itself in is probably somewhere after the captivity. And by that, we mean, of course, after the time of the 70-year Babylonian captivity, when the Jewish people were there in Babylon for 70 years as the result of their disobedience to the Lord, their neglect of the word of God, as well as their observance of the uh, seventh-year Sabbath for a period of 70 years, or excuse me, 490 years, which caused them ultimately to owe God uh, 70 years of letting the land rest, where God then put them out of the land and they were taken into captivity as they were conquered by the Babylonian kingdom. But then ultimately, uh, after a time period, as God had promised, uh, God began to bring them back and open opportunity for them to return back to the land, uh, starting with uh, Ezra, and they went back, and a remnant went back under Ezra's leadership, and they began to uh, uh, rebuild uh, the temple and, and began to regather back. And sadly, uh, though God opened the opportunity as he stirred the heart of Cyrus, who was leading and overseeing the people of the Jews at that time, uh, and allowed them permission to all return, there was only a very small remnant that chose to embrace the call of God and to go back to Jerusalem, to their homeland, to restore the worship life there. Many of the people instead, sadly, had grown very comfortable in Babylon. Uh, and Babylon was a prosperous land, and many of them had grown very accustomed to their businesses and their wealth and their comfortable lifestyles in the Babylonian system. And so when the call of God went forth uh, to go back and to reestablish the worship life and to return to their spiritual roots, many of them chose the, the comfortable, worldly, influential lifestyles they had come to enjoy in the Babylonian system. And so only a small portion of them went back. And those who went back, uh, though they were answering the call of God, it was not easy. Uh, if you remember, they went back to really a dilapidated city with structures and the temple and the wall. Everything had been broken down and burnt and ruined. And then ultimately, of course, when Nehemiah went back years later to try and restore and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem itself after the temple was built, even in his time period still, it was, it was hard going. It was difficult. So when they went back and they answered the call of God, they were where God wanted them to be. But it was far from easy. They were exactly where God called them to be. They were doing exactly what God had called them to do, but it was not easy going. In fact, honestly, it was hard and it was difficult. There wasn't a lot of evidence uh, outwardly, but yet God's spirit was behind what they were doing. Uh, and so it seems that the psalmist, perhaps somewhere in this time period, makes this cry unto the Lord. And ask for God to bring their help that they needed and to bring restoration and spiritual revival and renewal among the people. He begins verse 1 there by saying, Lord, you, he says, have been favorable to your land. You have noticed, he says, brought back the captivity of Jacob. So he begins by recognizing, Lord, you've done what's in good favor 
for the land. God had given the land its rest that they were supposed to give to it. Uh, God had restored them back to their homeland. God had given the land uh, of Israel to the Jewish people, and that was his prerogative. God owns the whole world. God says in the Psalms, the world is mine. Uh, And so God can give any part of the world to whoever he wants to. He's ultimately the great landlord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so God chose to give the land of Israel to the Jewish people. When they misbehave, uh, God moved them out. And then after a time period, God allowed them to move back in once again. And so God had been favorable uh, to his land and he had brought them back. And the psalmist acknowledges that now, Lord, it was you. You're the one who has brought back, he says, the captivity of Jacob. So God has brought about a a sort of a a restoration. But you know as well as I do that after a time maybe of failure and even in the process of restoration, it's still hard going. It's not easy, right? If you you fail, you make mistakes, there's the, the bad fruit of that. There's the consequences and the difficulty. And the Lord may forgive instantaneously, but restoration is a process. And it's always important to remember that. Because sometimes we still got to work through the bad fruit and the difficult circumstances that sometimes are attached to wrong decisions or detours or when we backslide. And so the people are working through this as they're now being brought back. And this seems to be part of the discouragement that the psalmist is kind of inferring to. He mentions in verse 2 how he knew, notice, that the Lord had forgiven them. He says, verse 2, in a past tense, notice, you have forgiven the iniquity of your people, and you have covered all their sin. You've taken away all your wrath, and you've turned from the fierceness of your anger. So he says, Lord, this we do rest in. We we know that you've forgiven us. We know that that's settled. We know that you have turned away, he says, the fierceness of your anger, that you've covered all of our sin. And the psalmist found rest in that because ultimately he realized that no matter how difficult the circumstances now were, and it was hard, though they were back where they were supposed to be, he realized that though the circumstances may be hard, in a sense, it's almost as if you sense the psalmist saying here like that great hymn, at least we know that it's well with our soul. Things may be difficult circumstantially, and we're working through now the challenges, we're trying to rebuild We're trying to to get things back on track. We're trying to restore the temple and worship and rebuild the walls and restore life to the city. And it's hard going. This rebuilding process is not easy, Lord, because there's a lot of baggage that goes along with our disobedience and the sins of our past and the things that we've done. And right. We we all know that when you first come to Jesus, uh, it's wonderful to know, is it not, that the the forgiveness of sins is available. It's nice to know that your sins are covered as well with your soul. But sometimes you still got to work through stuff. It doesn't mean all the problems and the circumstances and mess and so forth and baggage of past decisions and wrong mistakes that we've done in the past are, are something that instantaneously goes away. And we got to kind of work through that process a little bit. But how wonderful to at least rest in that reality that, you know, hey, this this may be hard and I may have to work through this rebuilding season or work through some of these difficulties and hardships. But Lord, thank goodness that you've forgiven our iniquity and you've covered all of our sin. And at least we know that you're not angry with us, that you're not upset with us and that we're right with you, that we're at peace with God. And You know, we look at verse two and three there, and certainly the psalmist is saying this in light of the reality of the old covenant. 
and animal sacrifices and blood being given for the atonement of sin, how much more is this true in our lives under the new covenant promises of the finished work of our Lord Jesus? That we can look at what's declared there in verse 2 and to know that because of what Jesus has done, if our trust is in him, in the finished work of his cross and his resurrection and ascension back to the right hand of the Father, that if our trust is in him, that he has forgiven the iniquity of our sin and that he has covered all of our sin. In fact, the Bible promises even better. First John says that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sin. You know, one thing to say, man, at least my sin's covered. At least that's covered. Whole another thing to say it's cleansed. The idea is that's removed. The stain is gone. It's not even there. The guilt doesn't even exist. The, the record, if you would, has been expunged and completely taken away. It's not as if it's, you know, kind of something still hanging around on your record, right? And, and nobody wants that. I mean, if that happens from a criminal perspective and, and your record follows you the rest of your life, well, sometimes we think that's kind of the idea spiritually. There's still this record of my past sins or my mistakes. Well, biblically, God says, no, there is no record. The record has been cleansed. The Bible tells us, Colossians 2, that handwriting that was against us, those documentations of our sins and our infractions and our wrongdoings, that's all been cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's been completely washed. The record's been cleared. There is no record anymore, and because of that, we can rest all the more in what verse 3 says. You have taken away all your wrath. Now, the psalmist was saying that in light of just kind of God's anger because of what they had done in disobeying him, not honoring the Sabbath years and their idolatry. But for you and I, that is 100% true that the Lord has taken away all of his wrath towards us. The Bible tells us in Thessalonians that as God's children, as Christians, that we are not appointed unto wrath. And important that we do understand that all sin arouses and merits, or we may say deserves, the wrath of Almighty God, right? Sin must be punished. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that before we were saved, before we were converted spiritually, it says we were, like all others, children of wrath. John tells us in his gospel that if we've not yet turned to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in our lives, that the wrath of God abides or remains upon us. That is our condition apart from Jesus. We are scheduled to to experience the wrath of Almighty God. But the wonderful thing is, is that Jesus in his work accomplished what the Bible refers to making propitiation for all of our sins, which means it satisfies the wrath of God. And that's why the Bible declares we're not appointed to wrath anymore now, but to obtain salvation. Will God's wrath be poured out against sin in this world? Absolutely. But only upon those who have not embraced what Jesus did, because what did Jesus do when he was dying on the cross? He was bearing all of the wrath of God against the sin of mankind. He was bearing all of that in his body, suffering the wrath of God for sin on our behalf. And for those of us who trust that and trust that Jesus bore our wrath, we are excused and removed from bearing the wrath from standing before God in our own, in a sense, judgment of of who we are before him. But for those who refuse what Jesus has done and say, I don't need that, I don't want that, I don't believe in that, 
I will stand before almighty God, my judge, my creator, myself, then what that means is that they are choosing to embrace the wrath of God against their sin because they refuse what God offered, which was the escape option through Jesus Christ. But how wonderful to be able to, despite what we work through circumstantially sometimes, again, could be the past effects of our sin. And sometimes that can, that can linger for years, right? Sometimes the consequences of our past sins or things that we did, maybe even before we were walking with the Lord, or even things maybe if we made a major you know, mistake since we've been walking with the Lord, consequences can last not only for a while. Some consequences can last, what, for a lifetime. And that's hard. But how wonderful to know that though the consequence may be one thing, forgiveness is true, it is cleansed and covered, and that the wrath of God is not towards us. The favor of God is towards us. And we have to be careful because when we work through the consequential challenges, that's what makes us sometimes think maybe God's still angry. And we have to be careful to delineate between that and not let our mind get confused about that. It almost seems that's what the psalmist is struggling with. Because it was hard going when they got back after the captivity, because it wasn't just easy and they were working through all the rubble, right? They're having to rebuild and they're working through the rubble and the damage and the burnt things. And and man, this is hard trying to recover from the problems that we brought upon ourselves because of our sins against God. In the midst of that, no doubt in their humanity, their feelings, the lying voice of the devil, they're thinking, maybe God's just still mad at us. Maybe he's just still upset with us. And it seems that's kind of what the psalmist is implying, because notice as he goes on, verse 4, he says, Restore us, O God. We're trying to rebuild, but Lord, we're asking, please, would you, would you bring your restoration? Would you bring a restorative work in our situation, God, restore us, O God of our salvation. And notice what he says, cause your anger toward us to cease. It's almost as if he senses, Lord, is that why we haven't been restored yet? Is it because you're angry with us or upset with us? Now, that may have been what they were feeling, but that wasn't true. But notice verse five, will you be angry with us forever? Lord, is it possible there's still some lingering frustration maybe that you're feeling towards us? Is that what this is? Lord, maybe are you harboring a little bit of frustration and that's why you won't bless us or restore back to us? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Or, or Lord, is that what it is? What the prior generation did, you're still upset with us? And then he makes this beautiful cry, verse six and seven, will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So as he's making a cry under the Lord to bring his restoration to help in that process, he now in verse six and seven begins to cry out for just renewal and revival from the Lord. He recognized, Lord, we can't revive our own situation. And again, the word revive means to bring something back to life. The idea is there was once life there. There was once vibrancy and vitality and fruitfulness, but something has happened that caused that to diminish or even worse, to completely die, right? When you revive a person or resuscitate a person who's died, right? And you, yeah, it's the idea. There was once life there, 
but the, something has happened, the life has gone away, and so now you're trying to restore or bring back life. And from a spiritual perspective, sometimes this is what's necessary for the people of God. This is not, revival is not something that's necessary for the unsaved world. Lost people who are dead in their trespasses and sins don't need revival. A lot of times we think about spiritual revival and we picture, well, Lord, bring a revival so tons of people will get saved. Well, you're talking about an awakening. Dead people need to be brought to life. They need life. They've never experienced spiritual life. That's called a spiritual awakening. When people are dead in trespasses and sins, they need to be brought to life. That's called an awakening. A revival or being revived is for the saved. It's for Christians. It's for God's people, for the church who have experienced spiritual life. But whether it's because of sin or complacency or spiritual apathy or distraction or worldliness or carnality or whatever it may be, something has drastically diminished the vibrancy of the life and the power and the vitality of God's spirit working in our lives individually or among us collectively as the people of the Lord in such a way where where those who are God's people in a sense diminish and diminish and diminish to such a degree where there's a need for a revival, a spiritual revival where the breath of God, almost in the same way we would, you know, breathe into someone, maybe to try and resuscitate someone who's, you know, in need of CPR or whatever, where God would breathe upon his people by the power of his spirit and the breath of the spirit of God, just like Adam. Remember, it says God breathed into Adam the breath of lives, and it says that Adam came alive and became a, a living being at that point. And that's kind of the idea, that just like Adam, all, and when God created Adam, all the physical life was there. But, but, but it was the breath of God that brought spiritual life. And l- like Ezekiel, where it says that he saw these dry bones and then he saw those dry bones starting to come together and they started coming back to life. And, and that's the idea there. Jesus said, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So again, so important to understand. When we need spiritual revival personally or when we need it collectively as the church and as God's people, that's not something we can bring about by an effort of the flesh. You know, sometimes that's kind of the, mind, the mindset that it almost seems that we convey. Hey, we're, you know, we're, we're going to have revival meetings. So we're going to set these three days on the calendar and we're going to have special, you know, gatherings, times of worship and God's word and prayer, whatever. And they're going to be revival meetings. Well, you can't cause revival. We can't bring about revival. Uh, let me just illustrate that naturally. Right. If before the service is over, this is not prophetic. If Kevin drops dead here on the floor, that's not a word of the Lord, I promise. Can he revive himself? Can he? Of course not. Right. He needs someone else to revive him. So in the same way, if we need to be revived spiritually, you can't revive yourself. And the church can't bring revival about through efforts of the flesh. There needs to be a sovereign move of the power of the spirit of God. Jesus said it's the spirit who gives life. Revival is a work of the spirit of God who quickens the people of God by the power of his, of his, of his mighty you know, work in our lives that brings that rebirth and that revitality back to us. That's what Zechariah meant when he said... God declared there, not by might, 
nor by power, human ingenuity, ideas, efforts, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Again, it is something that is so crucial from time to time in our lives. And what we should do is recognize if we need revival. We should cry out to the only one who can bring revival, which is God. That's what the psalmist is saying. Revive us. Lord, will you not please revive us, Lord? Lord, we need revival. Lord, please bring revival. He's saying, Lord, will you not revive us again? Lord, bring back that work of your spirit. Bring revival. And, you know, when you look all throughout the history of the church and times when genuine spiritual revivals happened, it was just a powerful move of the spirit of God who just blew through the sails of the church and something incredible and marvelous happened because it was God bringing genuine spiritual revival. It was a move of the work and power of God's spirit that brought that to pass and has from time to time. And we should always be seeking the Lord and asking, Lord, please do it again. Will you not revive us again? God, you haven't changed. You've done it for other generations of the church. Lord, as we need that in our lives, bring it again. Will you not revive us again? And the wonderful thing is when spiritual revival happens among the church, that's when a great awakening happens among the unsaved. That's why often we tie together in our minds a spiritual revival with a bunch of people getting saved. Because when spiritual revival happens, when God's Spirit's moving mightily among the church, all of a sudden, Christians become fireballs and the work of the Spirit becomes so powerful through the lives of God's people that unsaved souls start being impacted and start being converted. And so therefore, it's the revival that gives birth to a greater awakening as many unsaved people get saved as well. But the psalmist here is asking, and I think this is a great prayer for us. And notice some of the things that he almost seems to, if you could say, under the leading of the Spirit, to attach in some of his language to a revival. Notice that when there is a spiritual revival, we see in verse 6, it causes, if you would, a renewed enthusiasm towards the Lord among God's people. He says, will you not revive us again that, so that your people, the people of God, may rejoice in you? The idea being is that prior to that or without the Lord bring a revival, the people of the Lord just weren't real enthusiastic about the Lord. I mean, they were thankful their sins were forgiven. They were glad to know they're going to heaven and, you know, kind of, you know, content to be in a relationship with the Lord, but they weren't enthusiastic about the Lord. They weren't excited about the Lord. And again, you do a little bit of study, look at times when genuine spiritual revivals have happened throughout church history. And that is one of the clear marks is there's this incredible joy and excitement and passion, a renewed passion that comes into the lives of the people of God towards the Lord where they just cannot get enough of the presence of the Lord, of spending time with the Lord, worshiping the Lord. I mean, you see and hear, you know, records of, of stories of, of people, you know, going to the house of God seven days a week spontaneously and staying there to like, you know, 12, one o'clock in the morning, just worshiping the Lord. And you're thinking, are you, I mean, are you kidding me? 
And it wasn't as if they were even hosting meetings. People were, we would just be showing up and worshiping and just constant singing and prayers. And again, the idea is that people were just enthusiastic, so excited about the Lord. And it's an indication. It's a, a mark of, of the fruit, if you would, you could say, that characterizes. How do you know when that happens? Well, will you not revive us again that your people may begin to just rejoice in you? The idea is people are more excited about the Lord than they are all the things of this world. And, and all of a sudden, that becomes their chief ambition. They're more excited about gathering with the people of God and worshiping the Lord than doing this and that and building all their everyday earthly lives and all the, you know, the things that we just can become so preoccupied in, which many times can take our genuine attention away from the Lord. And he says, show us your mercy, O Lord. And I think that's a great reminder because that's, that's what we need for revival. Lord, show us your mercy. And why do we need the Lord to show us mercy to be a part of revival? Because one major part of revival is conviction of sin. That is where God's people come under strong conviction of the sins in their own lives and the sins among the church and things that we are doing that are displeasing to the Lord. And so we need God's mercy because there's a real brokenness and a contrition that comes when revival happens where people become way more sensitive to conviction over sin. And it's not even necessarily, you know, things of, oh, sins of why I shouldn't be whatever, gambling or doing drugs or, or cheating on my spouse or stealing money. Or, I mean, the, uh, but people start to become convicted over just sins of attitude and just simple little things in their life that they know displease the Lord, ignoring the Lord, just things that nobody else would even see. But there's such a sensitivity to God again that people start to become convicted. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon me, Lord, for, for not trusting you. Lord, have mercy upon me for not loving you as much as I should love you or spending time with you the way I once spent time with you. And again, there becomes kind of this real strong sense of conviction that comes because the Holy Spirit starts to work in a very powerful way and he begins to bring conviction of sin. And he says, verse seven, and grant us your salvation and as we alluded to that that's that's what begins to happen lord please you've revived us let us see your salvation start to happen among people and there starts to be this this real burden for souls and seeing people get saved in a way like we typically perhaps don't see or or maybe we just are kind of apathetic about seeing there becomes this burning passion for, for souls and really wanting to see God saving people as the result of, again, that nearness and that you know, kind of heart coming in tune with a right relationship with God. Verse 80 goes on to say, And I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell, excuse me, in our land. So isn't it interesting? He prays, Lord, will you revive us? And he says, after he prays this, Lord, show us mercy, grant us your salvation. And then verse eight, after he prays, he makes this declaration. Now I, the idea is almost expectancy here. I will hear what God the Lord will speak for he will speak. See the two sides of that? He prays, and then he says, now I'm going to listen. Now I'm going to wait. 
I'm going to wait in God's presence. The psalmist is declaring there is something to be said for the spiritual discipline of speaking to God. And there's also a very crucial spiritual discipline of being quiet and trying to listen to God and to hear what God would say. Whether it's in our personal time alone with the Lord, whether it's in times when we're collectively worshiping the Lord in prayer and and gatherings of God's people saying, hey, we need to hear from God. What's God trying to say to us? And I don't know about you, but if we're incessantly talking to God all the time, and I think God likes us to talk to him, but if we incessantly just constantly are talking to God, talking to God, talking to God, you have to wonder if just like in a relationship with someone else where you're trying to have a conversation with someone and maybe they are asking your input or they're trying to tell you and and they're kind of trying to seek your counsel. And at a certain point, you think if you would stop talking, I'd be glad to answer your question now. Where I'd be glad to offer you counsel, and, and but because they don't take a breath or they don't, they just keep rambling on. And I wonder sometimes if part of the reason that we don't hear what God's saying is maybe we're talking too much. And, and nothing wrong with talking to God. You understand what I'm saying? But there's a balance in also having a quiet, expectant heart, saying, "I will hear what God will speak," because He will speak. And notice this: He will speak peace to His people when God speaks. It brings a tremendous peace over our heart. That's one of the ways you can know that's the voice of the Lord. Because God, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And when God speaks, he speaks very powerfully, but oftentimes it can just be in a still, small voice. But God speaks in such a way whereby there's a peace that comes into our soul that we know that is a word from the Lord. That was from God. I just heard what God said. And so he says here, I'm going to be expectant now. I'm just going to wait. And I want to hear because God will speak. So he says, I want to hear what God's going to say as he speaks peace into our souls, his saints. But notice verse eight. He also says, but Lord, let us as your people, what's he say? Not turn back to folly. (laughs) Well, that's a great statement. Lord, you've turned us around. You've gotten us out of our mess. You've got us back here to our homeland. And Lord, restore us and revive us and work among us. But Lord, please, why we're at it, please don't let us turn back to that folly that got us into this mess originally. Lord, please keep us from backsliding into those old behaviors, from turning back into those own errors. You know, we all love that proverb as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly, right? I mean, just that reality, you know, a dog throws up and then it begins to eat its its own vomit. The whole reason why it vomited was because something in it needed to get out of it. That's why you vomit. You vomit because something in you that shouldn't be there that's causing a problem, your system says, this needs to be ejected out of me. I need to get it out of me. So, the dog vomits, it ejects it out, and then it re-ingests the very thing that, that just got ejected out of it. And God says, in the same way that a dog returns and feeds upon and eats again its own vomit, so a fool goes back and repeats his exact same folly. That is, God gets a person out of a mess, God delivers a person out of a sin, 
God sets someone free from a path that was just a path of foolishness and folly, and God ejects it out of them. God gets it out of their life. By the power of his spirit, he brings strong conviction and repentance, and they, they get set free from it. And, and then sadly, because we have a free will, if we're not prudent and walking spiritually with the Lord, we all have the potential, and this is why the psalmist acknowledges this, but Lord, please let us not turn back to folly. You know, great thing to pray. And, and I tell you, l- look at revivals that have happened in church history as well too, and you notice no revival lasts forever. Why is that? Because as God's people, we ultimately <laughs> turn back to our folly. And that's why every once in a while we need to pray, Lord, will you not revive us again? <laughs> because we've, we've, as your people, Lord, we've turned back to the folly of our own ways. As the church, we've turned back to the folly of our own ways. And Lord, we need spiritual revival. The psalm is saying, Lord, please keep us. You've turned us back. Help us not to go back into error once again. He says, verse 10, mercy and truth have met together and righteousness and peace have kissed. Now, that's a beautiful statement. Mercy, God's loving, loyal love and truth that is that which is righteous and right he says they've met together mercy and truth have come together in a meeting and then he says righteousness and peace have kissed they've connected in an intimate way now that verse is a beautiful description of not only how god works in balance that god is a god of truth and god is a god of love the first john says that god is light and then first john also says that god is love That is, God is light, he's holiness, righteousness, truth. God is love, he's mercy and grace and kindness and compassion. And God is both, he's the perfect balance of both. And here he's describing how how these things meet together, they've come together, mercy and truth and righteousness and peace. Boy, that verse 10 there is a very beautiful prophetic statement of Jesus. Where else... Are such things true where mercy, the mercy of God, and yet the truth and and righteousness of God's word have been upheld and they've met together perfectly in balance in Jesus? Where else has righteousness, the righteous standard of God, and yet having been made at peace with God, kissed and come together in a loving, intimate way in Jesus? Because Jesus was everything that needed to be so that he could be the perfect mediator between God and man. And Jesus came and offered those very things unto us, bringing both to us the light of God and the love of God, the forgiveness of God, even though being completely righteous. That's why the Bible says in in, uh, Romans chapter 3 that God is both just and at the same time the justifier of those who believe because of the beautiful work that he did in bringing the life of Jesus to us. How wonderful. Verse 11, truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down, interesting, look down from heaven, almost a picture of God and his righteousness looking down from heaven. Verse 12, he declares, yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. So this assurance, trusting the goodness of God, he says, yes, the Lord will give the term there, what is, it's in italics in my translation. It should be in yours too. When you see things in italics on occasion, that's an indication that in the original uh, you know, manuscripts, in the original writings, those, those words actually aren't there. They're added in by the translators to help make the flow of the language more understandable. 
So technically, what the statement is there in the Hebrew, yes, the Lord will give good. The Lord will give good. What he gives is always good. You know, James tells us in the New Testament, every good and perfect gift comes down from above. And because of who God in his nature, that God is good, therefore what God gives unto us is good. Remember in our Psalm last week, we saw last week, Psalm 84, verse 11. What did he declare there? The end of Psalm 84, 11? No good thing will he withhold. And now the psalmist declares with confidence, yes, the Lord will give what is good. There's this promise of, of God because of his goodness, because he's a good father, He says, the Lord will give good. He will give what's good. He knows what's good for us, and he will give what's good for us. Again, Jesus understood this, even as he spoke of that reality when he said, if you being evil, remember Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children and your evil, earthly, weak, imperfect human parents, but yet you're favorably disposed to give what's good to your kids, right? That's the natural love of a parent and taking care of their children. And he says, look, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father, who's way better in goodness than we could ever be as a human being, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask? And Jesus wants us to have that perspective towards our heavenly father, that he will give what's good in our lives and to have that trust and that confidence. And he says, Lord, you will give what is good. And therefore our land will yield its increase. When God gives what's good, notice it brings about a fruitfulness. It brings about a blessing. It causes increase and fruitfulness to come because God has given what is good. He concludes verse 13 saying their righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. So again, beautiful statement. Righteousness will go before him because that is the pathway of God. The pathway of God is always a way of righteousness. The Bible tells us around the throne of God in heaven that one of the things that they are saying perpetually around God's throne is righteous and true are all of your ways. Now, sometimes as God is working in our lives now, and though he is doing what is good, sometimes we struggle with trying to reconcile what happens in our life circumstantially, with, you know, what's going on in the situation, and, and, and Lord, man, how is this right? Lord, this doesn't seem right. But look, the Bible says when God is at work, when God is on the move, righteousness will always go before him. Because whatever he's doing, ultimately, he's doing what's right. And see, what we always have to keep in mind is God's not just working in the present, in the temporary, in the immediate. That's where we get confused, right? We have to realize God is working in the eternal perspective. So sometimes when God's giving what's good, it may seem bad because God's working, Romans eight twenty eight all things for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Paul says the next verse in Romans 8, And that one of the good things that he's doing is he's conforming us into the image and the likeness of Jesus. Lord, this isn't good. This is really bad. And God's saying, I know it's bad. That's why it's good. 
because it's going to force you to be humbled and broken and you're going to seek me more and pray more and, and, and I'm going to be able to work in you to a greater degree and through this, I'm going to make you more spiritually in tune. I'm going to make you more Christ-like. I'm going to mature you in your relationship with the Lord and you're going to grow as a Christian and in the end, that's going to be really good and I'm going to work that together for the good. And for us to be able to have that awareness that though we, you know, we don't see it in the present moment to know that we serve a God who is always doing what's good. And so that we trust him in that way, he will give to us what is good. And certainly he does often do many good and wonderful things in our lives. So often he, he you know, he blesses us and he brings to our life what's good. And, and as we seek him, Lord, you know what I need in a situation. And how many times, you know, he brings what's, what's good into our life brings good and wonderful things and he blesses us. But sometimes there may be those times that we can't reconcile. And that's when we didn't know, look, when God works, righteousness is his path. Righteousness goes before him. And he says, we shall make his footsteps our pathway. I'd like that. His footsteps, and, and my translation is capitalized. I believe it should be referring to God. His footsteps, our pathway. The idea is, I'm not trying to walk where I think is good or best. I'm trying to walk in the righteous path because God knows what's right for my life, even though I may not know what's right for my life sometimes. So I'm saying, Lord, you're good. You're always working in a right way. So Lord, wherever you're going, I just want to follow. So wherever, Lord, your footsteps are going, I want to just make that my pathway. So, you know, so often we have problems, right? When we take our own pathway and, and Amos says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? And sometimes we just take our own pathway because we think what looks good or right to us. And, and we're going a completely different direction. Just God, would you just bless this? Would you just bless this? And, and we're going in a way and God says, I know you think that's good, but trust me. I'm a righteous, good God. And so he, God wants us to just trust him with that way of Lord, where are you going? What is your path? And Lord, I want to make that my path. You know, as I, as I read this verse, I have a little pencil mark here in my Bible. I'm assuming it's probably actually from the last time I was teaching through the, the Psalms in a prior time and I went through the Bible. And, and I noticed today I have written in here, it's real faded in, in pencil, but it says, walking in the snow together with my kids. And I know what that's referring to. Because when, when my daughters were little and I would go out and play in the snow with them when we'd periodically get deeper snow and we were pastoring in Pennsylvania for 13 years where we got some more substantial snow on the ground on occasion and when they were real little and we would bring them outside sometimes they were so little that literally i had to tromp through the snow and make steps in the snow and then they would kind of like stick their foot into where my foot was and then they'd stick their next foot in where my foot was because it was too deep for them to to walk it out on their own and the idea was hey dad wherever you step we're just going to step right there afterwards and in a sense they made their their pathway by just following my footsteps and trusting and and it helped make their path easier and see that's that's the whole concept of what god wants is that we would just say lord where are you going what are you doing lord just help us to just follow you to just make your pathway lord your footsteps our pathway that is what is best for us and look i tell you folks that is what's best for us from a church that we wouldn't try and be doing something or manufacturing but we say lord what are you doing lord what are you doing 
Lord, we know that we need revival and we need a work of your spirit. Lord, just help us to see where you're going and to just follow what you're doing and to, to just let your footsteps become our pathway and that would be our path and that we wouldn't be trying to to direct you but lord we would just be receiving direction from you and letting you direct our steps and that's the best thing for us as our families that we would just look to what the lord is doing and stay in step with that and for each and every one of our personal lives that we wouldn't become self-directed individuals but we would learn the value of just walking with god and letting him lead the way, right? Wasn't Jesus's statement continuously to his followers, follow me. Would to God what we may see if we would come to that place where we would truly surrender our will to the will of the Lord because we genuinely trust that he knows what's better for our life than what we think we do or we even want for our life. And we would just let his footsteps become our pathway. It makes the path a whole lot easier, just like it did for my kids. It made it much easier for them to go forward. And ultimately, it's going to be the best possible path for any of our lives. Let's stand together. Let's